Welcome to Questions of Faith. And today we have with us in our studio by the computer, we've got Father Simon Blakesley, who's a parish priest at St. Lawrence's Church in Cambridge. And we also welcome Father Colin Carr, who's a Dominican serving at Blackfriars in Cambridge, the Priory of St. Michael the Archangel. Um, good morning, Father Simon and Father Colin. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we have plenty of questions here. So, um, Father Simon, could I ask you to start with a prayer for us, please? Certainly. We'll say the prayer uh, invoking the power of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, enkindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and we shall be created, and you will renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who has taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of that same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in her holy consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, gentlemen fathers, we have um, to begin with two questions uh, that are about teenagers. So I'll give you the first one. My daughter is 16 years old and has begun to explore her own understanding of her Catholic faith and faith and the existence of God. I have explained that we have an obligation to attend Sunday Mass, but I have told her, other than the great feasts of Christmas and Easter that I have explained as essential, that she can make her own choice about attending Mass. She mostly comes, but sometimes doesn't. She doesn't want to attend confession. Is this the right approach? I feel she's too old now to be forced to come. So, um, Father Simon, if we could start with you for this one, please. I, I think we're always too old to be forced to do anything, really, I hope. And that... Um, Coming to church is just a natural part of family life, but I think there's always that period when children begin to identify themselves as different from their parents. There's a kind of moment of, of hatching when they develop their own tastes, their own ideas, their own skills, when they recognize they are a sovereign individual. And that's absolutely right that that should happen. Um, I always think of, of Mary and Joseph, when they lost Jesus when he was 12 years old, they, they lost a child and found a man because he had, as it were, developed his own independence. So that's an absolutely vital part of any person's development, that they do understand that they are a sovereign individual, not simply an extension of, of, of the egos of their, their mum and dad. And that, that's so important that that happens. Now, I can imagine a lot of parents see that as a bit difficult because if it is combined, as it is fairly often, with deciding not to come to church or say, oh, I don't believe in God anymore, and you get the, the monosyllabic teenage response, I can understand that's disappointing. But many people have been on that journey and come back, and and they, well, they've never really been away. It's just a question of finding um, their own reason, their own motivation um, to come 
and and be a part of of a wider Christian community. And for me, I think I kept going to mass through my teenage years because I sang in a choir. And the, as the Irish would say, the crack was fierce. You know, there were a, a lot of great blokes in the choir and the, the back row was very naughty. You know, you always have choirs with, with the, the, the jokes being said and the, the choir master or mistress uh, having a hard time with the, with the, uh, the basses and the tenors. Um, and that was us. And we had a... That was a lot of good friendships there, a lot of fun. And friendships and fun go a long way to keeping people coming to church. Would you agree, Colin? Yes. I mean, I think it, it, they've got to be attracted. Um, one thing that crossed my mind as you were speaking, Simon, is that so many parents blame themselves if they or should I say blame themselves if their children lapse, as we say. What did I do wrong? They say, well, you probably didn't do anything wrong. Right? You just It's just, as you say, children reach a certain age when they make their own decisions. And very often, uh, initially, their decision is not to go with their parents to church. Although the questioner here says that usually her daughter does still come with them, but sometimes decides not to. And I think if she begins to feel pressurized or, or sort of uh, looked at askance for not coming, then that'll probably put her off church even more. Because fundamentally, the question is, who, who are we coming to church to meet? And yes, we are coming to meet uh, fellow naughty lads in the back, choir of, back, back row of the choir and all sorts of other people. I used to have... Um, we used to go to two different churches when I was a kid. Uh, I was brought up as an evangelical Christian. And um, as one person pointed out, I, I had one sort of girl, young girlfriend, very puppy love type of thing, one young girlfriend in the Baptist church in the morning and one another girlfriend in the um, uh, Brethren Assembly in the evening. And as a friend says, you, you had a girl in every porch. But <laughs> we... Um, you know, I was attracted not I mean not only by the girls, but but by um, by the the fact that we were meeting with Christ. That G, you know, the way I put it in those days is Jesus is my savior, and that's a very sort of evangelical way of putting it. But it's a perfectly good orthodox thing to say. Jesus is my savior, and it's meeting Christ in the sacraments, in the people who are around, and of course later we'll discover in the poor, in the afflicted of our world. That's the important thing. And I think if if the if the young person knows that their parents' faith makes them kind, makes them loving to people, then I think even if for a period they fall away from going to church, nonetheless they'll know that there was something good there. And of course very often it comes about later on if they grow up, marry and have children, then they decide they would like to have them baptised, then they begin to rediscover the church, because uh, I had 35 years as working in the parish in Newcastle, and I saw this again and again. Um, but attraction, as, as Simon so rightly says, it, you're attracted by the almost the fun of it, uh, which is why making God boring is a terrible, terrible sin. Um, oh, thank I you. I think also I, I hear young people say, oh, it's always the same and it's really boring. 
And I, I've got one little riposte to that, which is fairly simplistic. But I say, if you listen to your heart, it goes lubbed up, lubbed up, lubbed up, lubbed up. It's always the same, and it's really boring. But it's actually keeping you alive. So not everything that is regular and the same and always the same, uh, not everything that repeats is is necessarily boring. Sometimes it can be vital. So yeah. I, I call Sunday Mass, it's the heartbeat of our faith. It's, it's, it's a regularity which is a sign of health. And uh, if your heartbeat suddenly became irregular, um, you'd soon be off to the doctor to say, oh, you know, there's something wrong. And so Sunday Mass is the heartbeat of our faith. Is is a, It's a good way of trying to communicate just the importance of monotony, really. Uh, but as Colin rightly says, making religion boring is, is, is really bad news. Yes, well, I'm sure you don't, Simon. <laughs> anyway, and, well, and those, I mean, the sermons. Well, not. <laughs> the, the sermons are not the same every week, and the liturgical season, you know, can become an exciting new change. Lent at the moment, and Easter coming up, and but even ordinary time throughout the year is really about an extraordinary event called the coming of Jesus. Mm. It strikes me, listening to you both, how important it is for parishioners to participate in supporting you as priests in running your parishes and keeping keeping the young people interested and alive. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I love the idea of the uh, teenagers hatching. I'm going to remember that when, when I have the occasional difficult moment with my daughter. <laughs> um, okay, the second question, um, again, relates... It's. I think you may have already spoken about this, but certainly the second part of this question we haven't covered yet. Um, as parents, what approaches have you found encourage, encourage teenagers to continue to practice their faith? What should we do in our homes? I've heard that we are the domestic church, what exactly is this and what should it look like? So, Father Colin, if you could go first with this one, please. Yes, it's interesting the question begins, as parents, well, I, I deny that I am a parent. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it struck me both with the last question and with this one, it would be lovely to have um, a committed Christian parent uh, as well on the, uh, on, on the, the panel, so to speak, um, because... Uh, I don't have the experience of living in a family, I mean, not since I was a child. But the, the domestic church idea is still, I think, grounded in that weekly attendance at Mass, which Father Simon spoke about, the heartbeat of it. But I, I've been, I've, I've shared life with families for, for brief moments who, who do have... Uh, daily prayer, and it's 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 all part of their family life. Uh, different people do it in different ways, but I, I'm sure it is very very important for people just to try and make sure there's some centre to the family's life. Um, when I was a kid, again in the evangelical um, setup, after breakfast my dad would get my brother and me to stand beside him and we'd have re readings from a, a little book called Daily Light 
which was simply extracts from scripture all on the same sort of theme. And he'd nudge my brother or nudge me to read a particular bit. And so we participated and that was fun to do. And that was just a, a giving a center to the family's life, if you like. We'd, otherwise, we were encouraged to say our own prayers. And when I was very little, uh, you know, mummy would come and, and uh, help me say my prayers. And God bless mummy, God bless daddy, and thank you for a nice day and all that. But um, as I say, I think of, of parents who have tried this, have tried various things and failed and succeeded, uh, would be able to say many, many things about this that Simon and I probably couldn't say because, you know, we're, we're just priests. <laughs> That's all we are. Um, mm -hmm. uh, not important people like parents uh, and so forth. But, um, but yes, I think making sure there is a centre to the family's life where there's some form of um, of shared meditation, and again, for as long as that can last. I mean, when the same problem comes as um, as teenagers begin uh, to to hatch, <laughs> uh, it's um, it's it's then a matter of knowing quite how to keep that up, and maybe in the end, the the two parents or even just one parent keeps up the the centre life of the family, just on their own, but including the family in their prayers. Mm. I, I think there are some very small things that, that can make a difference. Um, and I remember being staying with friends or a family and, and something came on the TV and my friend reached for the remote control and said, no, this is not suitable and changed the, the TV programme. And... Um, there are other things, you know, what comes into the house in terms of, you know, in days gone by, would you have the sun as your regular newspaper with, with page three? And and not that's not, uh, thank goodness, that's been recognised as, as unsuitable, as it were. But just looking at the things that flow into the house and, and, and the home and it's important to, to make sure that's positive. But also, when you're saying, no, we're not going to do this, or we're not, we're not going to have that, um, when you're making a decision, you say why, and, and you give um, a an personal example. Um, I think the, the first question had at the end the question of um, going to confession. And there's only one way to teach a person about confession that's just for the adults to go to confession themselves and say nothing about it just allow what they do to to be the example um, of that the importance of that um, to the adult um, and I remember my mum used to write in her diary when she went to confession and then went about three weeks ahead and just wrote in confession question mark, just as a prompt to herself to go to confession regularly. Um, and that, as you can tell, that, that stuck with me as a, as a way of um, just showing that that was important to her. And um, it's, as St. Francis of Assisi said, um, preach always when you have to use words. 
Um, so the, the, it, it's just the model of your own behavior and your own um, rhythms and priorities. They say an awful lot without saying anything. And another thing, if, if I may, um, is, uh, of course, saying grace before mm -hmm. meals. The only thing is, of course, nowadays, so often in modern life, people don't really have meals together. They're all busy snatching sort of cafeteria style, snatching what they can eat before they rush off to the next appointment and so on. But it is lovely if a family can at least have a meal together from time to time. Uh, and then grace before meals, which may change into simply a moment of silence before meals, when if children object to, uh, to ex explicit mention of God or whatever. Um, okay, well, let's just be quiet and uh, say our particular thank you or whatever it is, but being quite together over a meal. So there's a, there's a huge value in sharing meals because, of course, that is what we go to church for, to share a meal. Um, and Jesus did so much of his uh, teaching at mealtimes and uh, at, at uh, table with other people. So where it's possible for people to, to organize their lives so that they can eat together, and then before the eating, pray together, there, that is a great value. But I'd love to hear lots of parents talking about this and <laughs> talking common sense about it. <laughs> it would be good to hear, wouldn't it? I know my family, we're nowhere near perfect and nowhere near as good as many families would be at this, I know. Um, but the meal is when we say a prayer before and then in, in Advent and Lent, we read a we have a book and we just read a little bit of a book, you know, a preparation for the season. Now, Marie, now my daughter is uh, 16, so sh she's able for that now. Um, yes. Yeah, um, but it's really important, isn't it? If, if God isn't in our homes, then uh, there's something terribly wrong, isn't there, as Christians? Yes. Yeah. Um, right. I am going to put on some music now and I have some Taze here. So I'm really hoping you'll enjoy that. Oh, lovely. And we'll be back again for some more questions very soon. Thank you.
This is Radio Maria, and you are listening to Questions of Faith. And we have Father Simon Blakesley from St. Lawrence, Lawrence's Church in Cambridge and Father Colin Carr, a Dominican serving at Blackfriars in Cambridge too. Right, our next question is, I have heard that Jesus had a sense of humour. Could you tell us about where we see this in the Gospels? Father Simon, could I hand that to you first? Yeah, um, I, I think that there's a sense of humour shot through all of the um, synoptic Gospels and in John in places. Um, but one of my favourite examples is from the Gospel of Luke and his account of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, because they are obviously... You know, suffering because they they are convinced that everything has has come to a an abrupt end and and they are really um forlorn and uh, as St Luke tells us they they stop short their faces downcast and they say you know surely you must be the only person living in Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that have been happening there these last few days and Jesus says oh things you know do tell me <laughs> and uh, they say oh well, all about Jesus of Nazareth so he, he gets them to 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 speak of, of their faith um and and then he's he comes across with this you foolish men you idiots so slow to believe the full message of the gospel and it it's a wonderful human story but it begins with with Jesus being unrecognizable to them because he is smiling because he has nothing of, of the passion on his face he has the joy of the resurrection and that's probably why they don't recognize him because their last image of Jesus is it's like when you see a, a corpse that's a, a dreadful last image to have of somebody's face in death and surely the Lord risen would have had such a different um, appearance. That's why they could they they couldn't recognise him. They emotionally they they weren't expecting this, and so therefore they they simply did not recognise him. And the humour that that comes from this, he's almost winding them up. You know what a wind up merchant. But <laughs> you know. It just shows that death and resurrection is far too important to be taken too seriously. <laughs> yeah, I like that, Simon. Uh, <laughs> um, and then, of course, he goes and disappears as soon as they well, do. Indeed. It. <laughs> 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 just gone. Um, and I think he liked all sorts of humour. He liked slapstick. I mean, listen to this. Why do you see the speck in your neighbour's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye. Now, if you imagine him saying, we're so used to hearing that read in the gospel in solemn tones, but you don't realize it, it's, it's, it's sheer slapstick humor. And you can imagine Jesus acting it and the people falling about laughing. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye? And you've got a massive great log in your own eye. Get, you know, get real, you idiot. Take the log <laughs> in your eye first. And and you can imagine everyone going, oh, you know, belly laughs all around. It wasn't just, you know, as read at mass on a Sunday, but which I mean, I hope it isn't read like that anyway. But but um, 
which is really funny at a slapstick level. And there's another thing that makes me think Jesus must have had a sense of humour because he liked children, and children obviously like games and, and that sort of thing. And a sense of humour is, is about an ability, as, as Simon so profoundly says, uh, to see that the things which are really important have to be taken lightly, have to be um, taken almost uh, jokingly, because it is, it is so important and so vital that we, that it makes a mockery of all our efforts at serious putting the whole world to rights and so forth. So Jesus loved children. I mean, A, he saw them as um, examples of the kingdom of heaven, what it really means to be in the kingdom of heaven. But you told that story about the people of this generation who were like children in the marketplace who say, we played for you when you wouldn't dance, we mourned for you and you didn't die and you, did, you didn't mourn in yourselves. And pointing out that people uh, never respond in the right way to what he said or what John the Baptist said. And it, he must then have actually watched children and listened to children and thought that they were worth listening to. Now, that in itself is not um, a proof of a sense of humour, but the type of person who finds children important is going to be the sort of person who enjoys humour too. And uh, I guess there was a lot of laughter in... Jesus's surroundings, wherever he was, when he wasn't getting too angry with his disciples. And <laughs> some of the anger there was because they just simply couldn't see the joke. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Oh, that, he's saying that because we haven't brought bread with us. Fools, <laughs> <laughs> he said. And, and he got very ratty with them, but it was because he, he saw that they, they couldn't see it. And he, he thought anybody who hasn't got a sense of humour isn't really ready for the kingdom of heaven. That was a lovely question, wasn't it, for, uh, for bringing up a different side of Jesus to what, well, certainly I'm not so aware of. Certainly, I would think so. Uh, yes. And of course, um, once um, I remember, one, again, in my evangelical days, being in a Bible study where someone said, does God laugh? And then somebody pointed to, I think it's Psalm 2, you know, why this raving among the nations? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He's laughing them to scorn. Uh, and uh, God laughs at our um, stupidities and so forth. And, and, and then uh, Christ, uh, the Son of God, is clearly someone who enjoys a good laugh, too. <laughs> Lovely, thank you. Um, okay, I know that in the old days, Catholics were buried because our faith tells us that we can hope for bodily resurrection. Some of my family members have been cremated. This worries me. Um, Father Colin, could you answer that for our listener? Yes, indeed. <clears throat> We've recently been reminded that there is a real threat of <clears throat> nuclear destruction, nuclear war. Um, though that seems to have gone into the background where the news is concerned at the moment. But what happened at Hiroshima and at Nagasaki, a very, very Catholic part of Japan, people were simply pulverized. They disappeared. No trace of people could be found. Uh, other people, much later, the, the Hibaksha, the, the people who survived, suffered all sorts of physical and psychological traumas. But a lot of people simply were obliterated. They were no longer to be identified at all. Well, would such people not rise again in the resurrection? 
Paul says, when people ask what sort of a body do people come back with, he says, well, that's, that's another foolish question. You fool, he said. He's quite good at, the uh, Bible's quite good at calling people fools as well. And, and of course, we are such foolish people. Uh, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So the wheat falling into the ground, the, the grain of wheat doesn't look at all like the wheat that comes up, but it is, in a sense, the same thing. I coined a phrase once when I was um, thinking about these things uh, called explosive continuity. The risen, the risen Jesus, who met the disciples on the way to Emmaus and so on, and uh, met, uh, met them in other places too, and appeared to people, to Mary Magdalene especially, he was the same Christ, yet utterly different, yet utterly the same. He had risen. He, he was in his risen body. And it looked almost disappointingly like our own bodies. They could recognize him as a man, though not as a man who had been traumatized and, and, and hurt terribly. Though he still had his wounds. The wounds were part of the risen body. And that's hugely important. But Paul says... You know, you can't tell what we're going to end up as, but we are going to be the same person. It's not just the survival of a soul. We are ensouled bodies, and the whole body, body and soul, rises at the resurrection. The medieval um, theologians had great big discussions about what happens to the soul in the meantime while waiting for the body to, to rejoin it. But um, in some ways, it's a very naive kind of question, because... We, uh, God can recreate anything in any way God likes. God created the whole world out of nothing or out of the chaos spoken about in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1. The, the lovely Hebrew phrase, tohu vabohu, the, 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 the chaos was uh, turned into something of beauty by God. And, and in a sense, there is nothing. We believe that God creates from nothing. And if he's that creator from nothing, then it doesn't matter how our bodies are disposed of. Um, it, it was, it's understandable that people thought, it's, well, surely it's nicer to be buried than to be cremated. There's something of a, of sort of a courtesy, perhaps, towards the dead person or something like that. But it's not theologically uh, important what happens to people. As I say, pulverization in a nuclear holocaust um, is not going to stop God. Uh, recreating the God who created out of the tohu vabohu can bring our bodies, our ensouled bodies, back to life in a new way, which we wouldn't perhaps be able to recognize uh, ourselves. Though, again, we we are, in a sense, ourselves, like the risen Christ uh, on the Emmaus Road. But we, is that your dog? Um, I'm afraid so. He <laughs> um, wants to get in on the action. <laughs> but um, the whole question of will there be dogs in heaven is another another question uh, that hasn't been asked. Um, we God's dogs, <laughs> but but yes, God God is the creator, the recreator, and so whatever happens to our bodies, uh, lost at sea, buried, cremated, pulverized in some way, it it doesn't matter to God. We believe in the resurrection of the body by the power of the. God, who is creator and recreator. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right, Colin. But I think sometimes 
it helps to understand where that kind of why did sort of apologetics, you know, why, why did this uh, become an issue uh, for Catholics? I think there was a time when, as it were, the practice of cremation was was just becoming more widespread, i.e. The, the technology of, of crematoria was being developed. And people were saying, oh, well, you know, I don't believe there's anything after death, so I'm going to be cremated. It became a sign of a, a positive statement of a lack of faith of any life beyond the grave. Therefore, it, it became a little bit of a, an apologetics issue, and Catholics were encouraged or were, were told that they couldn't be cremated, they had to be buried. So that the hangover from that initial uh, apologetic debate is probably what is still hanging around in the minds and hearts of some Catholics who become anxious about cremation. But as Colin has explained, you know, whichever way we, we are, um, as it were, uh, our bodies are treated after death. I mean, it may be that the whole of the earth will explode and go into a black hole before the recreation. Mm. And you, you, uh, you know, I'm sure the Lord will be very good at creating something new out of a black hole, but it will have been completely uh, disintegrated before it is reintegrated. Um, and uh, I think people don't understand that actually, in, in even with body, bodily burial, um, you know, the, the disintegration is fairly total, um, really. It, it's perhaps, it's a, it's a more comforting idea that we're just sort of resting and that we will be brought back to life. But no, we we have to be, um, disintegrated, and uh, we have to fall, be, as it were, fall apart before we are brought back together. Do you mind if I add on to that, just before we have some music? Um, does that mean that there is a delay between dying and going to heaven? Or, or, I suppose ultimately we can never fully know, but what, what's, what, what do we, what's our Catholic understanding? Well... Nobody's come back to tell us, and I'm sure nobody had a stopwatch. Um, I, I suppose there is an experience. Uh, there are quite a few people who have had near-death experiences, and the report there is is really of of just how close the border of heaven is to earth, um, and it's it's a very um, in, it's a good place. I, I, a friend of mine had had an experience where he, he nearly died, and his experience of, of what he thought purgatory was, he said it was lovely. It was a place of refreshment. It was a, a place of great peace and restoration and and a sense of of everything being well. And I think part of the problem is that we've our iconography of purgatory has taken far too much from the medieval illustrators of Dante's Divine Comedy, and, and therefore um, purgatory is seen as a sort of halfway house to hell, which is, it, that is a very impoverished understanding of this place of refreshment, light and peace, without the fullness of the beatific vision, but it is a place of of restoration and refreshment. 
um, rather than a place of, of uh, anxiety or, or, or punishment. Absolutely, I agree, Simon. And um, I sometimes think of it in terms of um, you, you've come to this lovely party that's going on in, in the big house and you, you're still in your outdoor clothes and you, you take them off and you've got muddy boots and you take your muddy boots off and then you're all spruced up and dolled up and ready to go into the party and purgatory is getting ready for the party. Uh, it's a very positive thing. I mean, if you're in purgatory, you're on your way to heaven. <laughs> You've escaped hell already. Um, so, and and this, uh, all these questions about what happens to the soul on its own when it hasn't been joined by the body and those kind of uh, questions. Um, is it in some sort of a celestial waiting room or something, you know, lost property office or, or whatever? <laughs> these things are, are just things we don't know the answer to. What we can quote is from Scripture where Paul, again, says, when he seems to be quoting, that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the human heart the good things that God has prepared for us. Uh, what those good things look like, taste like, smell like, and so on, we just don't know. And what the time schedule is, we don't know, and we don't have to. We All we have to do is put our trust in the recreating God. Thank, thank you so much, both of you. I'm going to play some music again, and I'm going to invite dear listener. Please do give us a call on 01223 375 564, that's 01223 375 564. I know that Father Simon and Father Colin would be really glad to hear from you. So if you have any questions at all, please do do call in. Um, the phone line is open and I'll be keeping a watch on it while we have some music. And again, I'm playing Teze. Oh.
You are listening to Questions on Faith uh, Faith with um, Father Simon Blakesley and Father Colin Carr. Um, I have a question that's come to my mind uh, as we were, as I was listening to you both. And Father Colin, you've mentioned that you've had a evangelical upbringing, a family evangelical upbringing. And I was wondering, as Catholics, first of all, it would be lovely to hear a little bit about that experience. But also as Catholics, um, to both of you, what can we learn and draw from evangelical Christianity? Yes, thanks. Um, I, I thank God for my evangelical upbringing and background, and I haven't lost it. Um, a very wise aunt of mine um, said, when I told her that someone had said, gosh, you're becoming a Catholic, that must be like going from an arid desert into a tropical rainforest, <laughs> sort of uh, pictures they had of, of, of evangelicalism and Catholicism, the arid desert and the tropical rainforest. I'm not sure if they're very terribly good pictures, but <laughs> my aunt said, ah, did you tell him that you're allowed to take your desert with you? And all the, the good things about evangelicalism, I, I haven't said no to, I haven't said goodbye to at all. I, I mean, first and foremost, it is the personal relationship with Jesus as our Savior, which, of course, any, if you probe any Catholic, if you scratch beneath the surface, they too would say that. It just doesn't happen to be the language they use, mm -hmm. uh, just as the language of have you accepted Jesus as your personal saviour is not anything that comes from Scripture. So in spite of the delight of evangelicals in Scripture, and that's another thing which was tremendous. My dad knew his Bible off by heart. He could quote you chapter and verse for all sorts of, of verses, and, and he'd be right, you know. And I, I had a, got to have a tremendous love and knowledge of Scripture. And I sometimes tease fellow Catholics about their not knowing which end of the Bible the Old Testament is, and so forth. Um, uh, and that love of Scripture was linked in with the love of Jesus, the love of Christ. And we were perfectly orthodox in terms of the divinity of the, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, it, where we weren't so orthodox was perhaps in, in seeing the possibility, the importance of incarnation uh, as a road to and a, a, a ground for the sacraments, the sacramental life. We, in our Baptist church, um, I mean, there's a whole reality of the Anglican church, which is considers itself very often both Reformed and Catholic. Um, but speaking about my very, very evangelical and Baptist background, um, we didn't have a sense of church as... Uh, the visible body of Christ. The church consisted of, of all those who were saved, whether they were Anglicans or, or Baptists or even, even some Roman Catholics, possibly. You know? <laughs> some of them might, quite by mistake, have actually encountered Christ, you know, instead of all these saints and things that um, uh, we, we evangelicals thought that got in the way of Christ. They only get in the way in the sense that they're helping us towards Christ. So the sense of the church and of the sacraments was, was lacking, but the love of Jesus and the love of the Bible and, and also the, the sort of moral courage that so many evangelicals had, they stood up for things, just as people nowadays, Catholics, are, are known to stand up for pro-life 
issues uh, for the rights of the unborn child and the importance and preciousness of, of life towards its very end, too. Uh, so evangelicals, they would very often think the same thing. And um, they stood up for truth. Um, Elizabeth Fry, although a Quaker, which it wouldn't now, normally nowadays be seen as evangelical, she was an evangelical Quaker, and she preached a lot telling people to put their faith in Jesus. And she stood up for the rights of prisoners, the rights of convicts, and, and so on, those who were getting sent to Australia. So there was a great um, uh, courage uh, for social justice amongst evangelicals too. And that was something uh, which I'm very grateful for um, in my background. I won't say more because I know Simon would like to say a few things. Well, Colin, you, you hit the nail on the head early on in being able to talk comfortably about your relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, as your friend. Yes. Um, and that is something that a lot of Catholics are just a little bit kind of hidebound by the, the way in which we talk of our Lord and uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we... We have made our language very complicated and, and full of different constructions of, of, of the way we say things. So actually to talk freely about loving Jesus Christ is something that, that Catholics find a little bit difficult to do. Um, and and I, I think in terms of witness, um, we, we can lose out in, in just stating the obvious. Um, which is part of, of the, the great value of the evangelical tradition. So that, that's, I'm just very happy. And, and of course, people from the evangelical tradition have become Catholics, as Colin has. And of course, I think of Father Sam Randall, who is now mm. doing great things in Australia, but was the first priest director of Radio Maria England, uh, Sam was from a, a very strong evangelical tradition, and he's brought an awful lot of that that strength and directness and value in into his ministry as a Catholic priest, which is enormously valuable. Yes, and I I, I knew Sam in his um, uh, Anglican days when he was a I think the ecumenical officer for the diocese of Durham, and I worked a lot in ecumenical things up in when I was in Newcastle. And so we met and, and got to know each other quite well in those days. And I was so delighted to meet him here when I came to Cambridge. And I didn't realize what, is, what had happened to him, you know, his <laughs> life story. Um, and I thought, oh, yes, another one. <laughs> another one has fallen for it. <laughs> um, yes. That's another conversation for another time, isn't it? The journey, the journey that, that people like you, Father Colin, make. It must be a, a difficult journey, I'm sure. Um, but a fruitful, fruitful one too. Yes. Um, yes, in some ways. I mean, I, I, just as a personal thing, I, I, I'm very committed to, to trying to understand and work with people who suffer from depression, from the, the black cloud they sometimes talk about hanging over them. Um, I don't, haven't suffered 
hardly ever from depression. But when I was becoming a Catholic, in fact, it was such a radical change, or seemed to be. Uh, I feared it was such a radical change. Um, it was more the sameness that I rejoiced in in the end, but it seemed to be a, a horrible change. It might take me away from the love of my family and so on, which it didn't. They were absolutely super um, in their response to me becoming a Catholic. But I did, for a time, have this experience of a dark, dark cloud over me. I had my own little touch of depression. It wasn't too terrible. But I always say to people when they say, oh, there's nothing worse than spilling milk on a freshly cleaned carpet. I say, yes, there is. There's depression. And uh, so it was a hard task. It was a very hard journey. But it was, in the end, uh, brought forth more love in our family than I think we would ever have known about otherwise. Yeah, the uh, the working of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure. Um, yes. So thank you both for, the, for that. And um, I'm looking at the time. So will you keep an eye on the time for me as you're answering this last question? Um, I'll keep an eye, don't worry. It's a lovely <laughs> question too. It is, yes. Yeah, so what are parish councils for? Are they helpful to the par parish priest? Father Simon. There's probably very many different answers to that question. But yeah, parish councils are there to help the parish be a parish um, because um, the definition of a parish is it's a group of Christ's faithful. And so the group is the primary reality and they are animated. It's a bit like a, an orchestra uh, with a conductor. Um, the conductor can't make any music without the musicians, and, and a parish can't be a parish without um, having all of these different people working together in harmony. And I would imagine then you know, your parish council are, are hopefully um, some members of the parish who who have a particular interest or have a particular reason for wanting to work with the priest in making sure that the parish is alive and going in the right direction and has all the right concerns in terms of um, pastoral priorities. Um, I can remember when somebody said, oh, we have a parish pastoral council. And I went to a meeting um, and I said, fine, you're a parish council, but the question is, how pastoral are you? Because that is mm -hmm. what you need as a shepherd. You need people, as it were, who are a further afield in the parish, keeping an eye on the sheep and saying, oh, Father, did you realize that Mrs. Sanzo has gone into hospital? It's, it's the help in, in making sure that the priest can keep all the flock in view. Uh, and help in all sorts of shepherding issues are, are um, always welcome, I would say. I know Colin has had a lot of pastoral experience too, so. Yes, um, well, I'm not sure when, when we're supposed to stop, but I can just say, I, I spent 35 years in St. Dominic's Newcastle. Uh, for nine of those years, I was prior and parish priest um, and um, I was prior again for another three years. But w when I when I had the chance, I insisted that we should have a parish council because I felt that the parish was not 
nearly so happy when another prior and parish priest didn't really want to have a parish council. And there was something I thought very important lacking. I think, I mean, it's partly about that important issue of communion. We, we are in communion with each other. And, and the, the parish council is an, is an expression of the communion of, that there is in the body of Christ. And John Saint, John Henry Newman, wrote a, a, an article, a big thing that turned out as a book, called On Consulting the Faithful in Matters of Doctrine. And it, I think even in matters of doctrine, the laity sometimes save the clergy, as they did in the time of the Arian controversies in the fourth century. The faithful can often remind the, the priest when he's got frightfully bright ideas and modern ideas in his head that there are certain other things that we need to pay attention to um, and uh, can just be uh, people who help the priest to be a, 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 a good priest. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, okay, they could sort of take over if there was some extremely dynamic kind of person who set himself up as a rival to the priest. But, you know, the, the, the bad things don't stop the good thing uh, being a good thing. So, again, we're back to the parishioners. Yes, that's not the problem. <laughs> Where would we be without them? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I think there are, uh, obviously, from a... A practical point of view, um, the Code of Canon Law says a parish must have a finance council, but the um, uh, having a pastoral council is discretionary. Um, where where the situation suggests itself that this would be helpful, and I, I agree with Colin, it really always should be helpful to have that involvement. Um, and but it's also good that the as it were the membership uh, rotates um, because uh, people can as it were get stuck uh, in that situation and, and you end up with all the same people at the same meetings and uh, you get this enormous sense of deja vu. But having different people coming along and and rotating the membership and and um, you know occasionally the, the priest will move on. And it's important that the parish council stays because they have a, a sense of continuity and Absolutely. they can provide the pastoral uh, sense for the priest coming in. They can give him a, a much better idea of what's going on and, uh, as it were, who needs to be uh, looked out for. Thank you so much, both of you, uh, to Father Simon and Father Colin. Um, I have so enjoyed listening to all of those answers to our questions. And I hope we will see you both again in a not too far distant future. What? Yes, OK. <laughs> Father Simon, <laughs> would you would you give a send us no, out? Is it Father Colin? Father Colin, could, Father Colin, <laughs> could you give us a <laughs> would you send us off with a prayer and blessing, please, Father Colin? Well, I want, as I did on Wednesday night when we had this sort of prayers and intentions uh, session on Radio Maria, I'd like to end up with two things. One, a prayer of the Venerable Bede, which I just love, and I foist it on everybody I can. Prayer of the Venerable Bede. I implore you, good Jesus, that as in your mercy you have given me to drink in with delight the words of your knowledge, so of your loving kindness you will also grant me one day to come to you, the fountain of all wisdom, 
and to stand forever before your face. Amen. Amen. And then the prayer of blessing that the priests were to call down upon Israel. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Amen. Amen.